0: Welcome to another episode of Confabulation Podcast. I'm Deb Vanslette.
1: I'm Matt Goldberg. We've got more stories, true as we can tell them. Actually, uh, that is meant to be plural. We are going back, uh, looking at a couple of stories from our Deja Vu event, which was held at the Mainline Theatre in March of 2022. Was this
0: actually the first live event, live in person? Well, I feel like it might be because I hosted that show, and part of my intro was the deja vu of being back.
1: This is not deja vu, this is the opposite of that. I realized no, we had a January event live and in person.
0: Yeah, we did. But being at the mainline theater that <laughs> the was our big... That was the deja vu. Yes. That was also the deja vu.
1: I was gonna say it's our baby. It's not our baby. It's our it's our parent. I don't know. In many ways mainline birth the our, show. Yeah it was
0: our incubator.
1: Our incubator. We'd grown up of course first at the freestanding room and then moved down the street to mainline theater. Uh, I feel that's really the home where we where we grew into the show that we are today, though. Yeah, it's so. certainly
0: where I told my first story as well. So I've, I definitely have a nostalgic feeling for the Mainline. To you mainline, we love you. Yeah, we, we also do. love
1: you, Freestanding Room. It's been a while. Hope you're doing okay too. <laughs> anyway, we're getting off topic. Uh, we have two stories from Nathan Elliot and Taylor Tower, two regulars of Confabulation. Nathan works with us on our team. He's our grant writer. He's also a uh, an occasional producer. Uh, and Taylor is a former producer and story lab founder uh, at Confabulation. Uh, so, two really wonderful storytellers uh, exploring this topic of deja vu.
0: Let's start with Nathan Elliott's story. Here we go.
2: It's 1982, I'm seven years old, I'm driving around in a station wagon complete with the wood panel on the side. My father's driving us around the Seattle-Tacoma area through various neighborhoods. We stop every so often when we see a phone booth, we get out of our car in the late winter, which in the Puget Sound means these heavy, dark mists. We get out of our car, we get into the phone booth and we look for a phone book if you remember those, and we look for our name. We don't find the name that we're looking for, we get back in the station wagon, we drive far enough into another neighborhood, we find another phone booth, which will have a different phone book with a different neighborhood, and we look for our name again. Around the fifth or sixth phone booth, in this kind of Raymond Carver saturated scene, we find the name that we're looking for. And after we consult with the local gas station attendant for some rough directions, about 10 minutes later, we're standing in front of a, an apartment building. This is before Bill Gates covered the entire area with software money. This is the working class Seattle-Tacoma area when Tacoma was still quite frightening at times. And it's this concrete apartment building. We go up to the second floor, we knock on the door, The door opens, and there's shag carpet. There's a mattress on the floor. There's a cigarette and an ashtray still smoldering. Paperback mysteries around the mattress. Black and white television very softly playing the news. And in the door is this taller, lither version of my father. And my father says to him, says to his brother, Mom wants you to come home for Christmas. You can see my uncle's eyes registering shock as he looks to my seven-year-old self and to my father going back and forth. He didn't expect to be found at this particular moment, but he agrees. It's not a Hallmark movie. There's no tear-stained reunions. It's not that kind of story. Um, Sometime in the next few months, he kind of melts back into my grandparents' house and takes up residence in the back and becomes this presence that smokes cigarettes and listens to the radio and comes out for meals very occasionally. That's the opening. Around that same time, later that year most likely, I talked my father into teaching me to play chess. and So he brought home a 4 or $5 chess set, plastic with the cardboard, if you can picture that. And he taught me how to move the pieces taught me how to castle, showed me how to checkmate, beat me a few times, lessons progressed through the summer, and he said at some point, you really should ask Uncle Bill to play with you at some point. He knows what he's doing far more than I do. Uh, He's read the books, he's played in a few tournaments. I've never been able to beat him. So, next time I'm in Tacoma, I ask my uncle to play, and he, to my surprise, kind of materializes out of the background, um, still of cigarettes and mist, and sits down at the polished oak dining room table of my grandparents, my cheap little chess set, and he proceeds to completely dismantle me in ways that I found thrilling, sublime. Uh, I really, I don't know what it says about my seven, eight-year-old self, but I really enjoyed just getting my clock cleaned. I thought it was, it was just fascinating the way that I, I didn't know where this was coming from, and then suddenly I was dead. Um, And he would only ever say three or four words at a time. He would point out what I could and couldn't do. Uh, He might make a a minor suggestion here and there. When I'd had enough, he kind of melted back into the background. When I wanted to play again, somehow he was there to play again. A few years later, around the time I was about to start high school... Um, he disappeared again. And this time he didn't just disappear into another neighborhood. Uh, No one knew where he was for a week until my grandmother got a phone call from Alaska and he had simply moved to Alaska one night. And I don't know why he hardly spoke to any of us. I don't know why he would sort of appear and disappear. Uh, My father and I both have our speculations, but honestly, the complete lack of evidence, your guess... Friends and strangers are as good as mine. 30 years later, at least, uh, I am now living on the west coast of Newfoundland, which is about as far from the center of anything as you can possibly get. And my life has become snow and ice and washing cloth diapers for my new baby son and teaching Raymond Carver to 18-year-olds in the States online in the middle of the night when I'm not taking care of my baby son. And it includes occasionally playing chess on these online servers. And for those of you who don't play, you can sign up for this kind of Facebook chess Facebook thing. And you can have a game at any time of the day or night. And I'm playing Mexican high school students. I'm playing Parisian housewives. And I'm playing my father quite a bit. And I've improved a lot since I was seven or eight years old. I can beat my dad one time out of three, one times out of two sometimes if I'm rested, um, I win, if I'm not rested, I lose, that kind of thing. Somewhere in the middle of all that, and I really don't remember how it happened, my, my uncle just kind of reappears in my life, living in Alaska and playing chess on these online servers with me. And a lot has changed in my life, but this one thing has not changed, and that is that he still completely destroys me every single time. He still completely destroys my father. It's like playing the Terminator, right? You remember the Terminator. The Terminator does not move actually particularly quickly. He does not show emotion. He does not get hurried. He simply destroys. You try to shoot him. You try to blow him up. He simply gets back up and keeps coming for you while this heavy metal music keeps thudding in the background and he keeps proceeding towards his goal of completely and utterly annihilating you. And we still find this utterly fascinating. My father father and I are interested in where he lives. We are interested in what he does. But what we really want to know is why he still keeps playing chess with us. Why bother with such easy marks? And we really can't figure it out. Around the same time, I'm trying to write some fiction. I'm trying to write chess stories, oddly enough, Uh, as geeky as that sounds. um, I'll never be a great player, but there's something around the drama of these players that I find fascinating. And I was trying to write something about it, and I've got a subject. I've got this weird guy. This is my uncle. And I could is talk to him about it. And on this little chat function on these chess servers, I start to have a conversation with him about why he likes to play the game. And I get two, three hundred words from him, which is my uncle being extremely chatty. And he tells me it's the puzzle of it. And I get the distinct impression that winning and losing does not matter to him one little bit. Um, It's this endless series of new puzzles that chess just throws up at you, like a kaleidoscope of, of puzzle solving. And it's just making that next move, making the next best move you can against the situation that you've been given by your opponent. And this makes some sense to me. Ten years after that, and I'm on a, in a plateau apartment in Montreal here, waiting out the pandemic. And for reasons I'm sure you can understand, I'm playing a lot of chess again on these online chess servers, and I'm playing my uncle again. And it's very odd how the moment operates, just like he did, where I look down at the board, the screen, and I make a move. And I realize that I have not left my uncle a lot of options. And he makes a move. That forces me to sort of repeat the thing that I just did. And then he repeats the thing that I did. And then I do this thing that I've only sort of done as a joke to him before. I offer a draw. And this time he takes it. And I'm elated. I've just beat this 75-year-old man. Or oh, I haven't beaten him. I've, I've, I've tied him. I've, I've, I've pushed him to a draw. This is fantastic. Uh, this is the highlight of my chess-playing career. This is. The best thing that's happened to me during the pandemic, if I'm really honest with you, this might be one of the highlights of my entire life. <laughs> I play him again, and this time things get even weirder. I actually beat him. I bring him to check me. Now I'm getting worried. Something's off. And so I'm on the phone with my father not too long after this, and I was like, is he okay? Is he going senile? Is something wrong? And my father just chuckles softly, grimly, both, and says, no, there's nothing wrong with him. I still can't beat him. I, I haven't won in hundreds of games. It's been, it's been a decade since I, I even came close. He's fine. I still don't know why he plays me. One more time. I had figured out from him how to beat him. I was in this sort of zen-like state, I think, in the middle of the pandemic, where you just sort of let go of all teleology, and you make the next best move. And from him, I learned this thing, how to beat him. Apparently, they were on the phone a bit later, um, my father and my uncle. And my uncle was extremely pleased to have been beaten and to have been pushed to a draw. He liked losing at the age of 75 as much as I liked losing at the age of seven. He found it amusing and pleasing. A few weeks ago, and I do mean of just a few weeks ago, I was playing another game with my uncle. He still beats me most of the time, but if I make the tiniest mistakes, he, he just unravels me very quickly, but I can push him, and he, he shows me a lot more respect than he used to. And I'm playing around the 12th move. He suddenly disappears again. And I win on time. The chess clock goes off and I, I win. And these sudden wins on a chess clock worry me, especially in the pandemic and with my father and my uncle uh, getting up there. So again, I'm texting my father. Is everything okay? And my father says, well, this time, actually, yeah, he's, he's having some health problems and he needs a break. He'll play chess again with you soon. And he's making this promise to me that makes me feel like I'm seven years old all over again. Your uncle will play again with you soon. It'll be okay. And there's this part of me that knows that my father is lying to me about this. Maybe he will play with me again. Maybe he won't. But the end is coming. The game is coming to an end. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Nathan. Coming up next, we have Taylor Tower.
3: Joel and I uh, sat by his window spying on the neighbors. It was incredibly bright and sunny and he warned me not to look directly at the sun. I asked him why and he didn't know. He just said his mom had caught him doing it once and told him to stop. So we look at each other and we throw a hand up over our eyes and turn our faces towards the window. On the count of three, we lifted a finger and peeked through. My vision whited out and I squeezed my eyes shut again. The bright orb of the sun shone on the backs of my eyelids. We sat there silently for a while, sharing something bad and dangerous. Joel was my first friend. He lived two doors down from me, and we met when we were three years old. I was busy in my driveway making perfume Um, It was very easy, the recipe. I would just go around the block and pick flowers out of my neighbor's yard, daffodils, tulips, whatever, toss it in a bowl of water. And the trick was to stir the flowers fast enough to release the smell. I was convinced that this is how all perfumes were made. So suddenly, a shadow darkens my flowers swirling in the water. And I look up, and there he is. Do you wanna play with me? Whoa. (laughs) Like, I admired his bravery. I mean, this kid crossed the threshold from the safety of the sidewalk into a stranger's driveway. Okay, (laughs) yeah. I followed him back to his house. Now, your first friend is like a passport to an exotic new land. I mean, Joel's family, (laughs) he had a mom, he had a dad, He had two teenage brothers who I only really got fleeting glimpses of as they quickly closed their bedroom doors whenever we were around. And his house, it was always like 75 degrees. It was sweltering. And that just amplified the alien potpourri of his family. It was like a mix of chalky detergent and teenage sweat. Um, But... We would spend most of our time in his second story bedroom, playing cops and bad guys. I did let him choose the game. His room was the police station and his closet was the jailhouse. And I remember he finally got a police costume, but he didn't know how to do buttons. And I was like, Joel, <laughs> I just learned how to do buttons a week ago. So. <laughs> I demonstrated how you coax the little plastic circles through the slits with my fingers. He took over, he fastened a few, and he had his tongue out in serious concentration. Now, the journey from his front door to his bedroom could at times be perilous. Once I came over and his dad let me in, and he was sitting on the couch with his mom, And she was giving him a shot with a needle. (laughs) My eyebrows crinkled in concern, and he announced, I have diabetes. I had no idea what that meant, and I was so worried his mom was going to give me a shot. (laughs) I mean, she was scary. Uh, She very much looked like, um, just like... The woman you see at the grocery store who is kind of running into everyone with her shopping cart, wordlessly, she was very intimidating. She wasn't funny or warm like my mom. She barely spoke at all. And she insisted on making lunch for us. I guess if you're like three, four, you know, the adult needs to make food for these children. But she would always make the same thing. It was peanut butter and jelly sandwiches without the peanut butter. It's like, the peanut butter is the only viable part of the sandwich, so why are you doing this? So we'd be sitting at the kitchen table and th- just this like sickening, sweet smell of grape jelly, the worst type of jelly, <laughs> piercing my nose as my fingers just sank into the soft white bread. And I'd come up with an excuse and go home to eat something else, honestly. Dear God. So, unfortunately, when we started kindergarten, Joel was not in the same classroom as me. And I also noticed he stopped coming around the driveway uh, to play with me. And so the only time I would see him is when he was, like, whizzing around the neighborhood on his bike. And at the time, I did not know how to ride without training wheels. And so I could not keep up with this level of speed, this level of excellence was not for me at that time. And I just felt like, okay, if I could learn how to ride a two-wheeler, Joel and I would be best friends again. And instead of eating these sandwiches, we could just get on our bikes and explore parts unknown of our neighborhood, like we could cross the street, okay? (laughs) We could. I had this like banana seat bike from the 70s that my mom found somewhere and you can't put training wheels on that cuz in the 70s they were just like if the kid dies it's fine like <laughs> don't worry about it. So the the training wheels were like hovering at least an inch off the ground. So I would strain my legs to reach the pedals. And if, big if, I could get the thing going, the ride was this unsteady sway from right to left. Not good. So one day, I gear up. And I get my neon pink knee pads, my neon pink elbow pads, my neon pink helmet. And I tell my mom, take off the training wheels take them off. So I hoist myself onto the seat and here we go. All right. Uh, I'm swatting at the pedals. Okay. The, The front wheel is slithering back and forth like a snake and the handlebars just fall out of my hands. My legs get all tangled up. Next thing I know, the sidewalk is leaping towards my face, smacking me. I roll onto my back. And I look up, I crashed in front of Joel's house, classic. As I get to my feet, I notice that a chunk of neon pink plastic has been scraped off my knee pad and is just like stuck into the gray sidewalk. And it wasn't long after that and maybe it's because of that, Joel moved away. All I know is that one day he was gone, and I did not get a chance to say goodbye to him. Seven years later, I'm in eighth grade science class, and a new kid walks in, and his name is Joel, and I know it's him from his eyes. That's the Joel. So the minute the bell rings for recess, which in middle school is just you stand around and are very upset and try not to get bullied. <laughs> the minute the bell rings for recess, I'm, I follow him out the door. And honestly, at that time, there wasn't a lot that I got excited about. I didn't really have hope, I guess you would say. So I was convinced he would be as thrilled as I was that we had found each other again, that we would be together again. In the midst of middle school, which is very much a breeding ground a a army training camp for hatred and cruelty (laughs) from the youngest sixth grader to the principal of the school telling you to your face that you're gonna go to jail or get killed and that's your future. This was like a keepsake from a simpler time. So I noticed that he's standing towards the back of the school with some other kids. I walked towards them hi, Joel, it came out way too loud, like really loud. And uh, he stared at me and time ticked by in slow motion. We used to be friends. We, you know, you were my neighbor. I'm Taylor. He smiles out of politeness. I can tell he's uncomfortable. He doesn't remember me. On my way home from school that day, I stop in front of his old house and there's his window with the Japanese maple leaves rustling against the glass. And just behind the glass, suspended in time, there are two little kids who only need each other. And now I'm on the other side of the continent, but I can visit that window and my first friend Joel anytime I want. All I have to do is close my eyes and summon the orb of the Sun to the backs of my eyelids. Okay.
1: Of having these two storytellers together in an episode, uh, they're both very writerly. They're very, both very prepared. They're both very willing to let their story breathe in the moment, though, and uh, you can really feel that connection with the audience. Nathan's is such a story about growing up and growing into the people we are as adults, and then Taylor's story is really fixed on this young these these two younger moments of life.
0: Yeah, these two younger, very vulnerable moments of life, being very little. And having a connection with somebody, and then just being in high school, not that many years later in a way, um, feeling that closeness to them because of what you did as little kids. And that other person does not reciprocate at all. The moment experienced is yours.
1: Yeah.
0: It is yours. It I is s- not necessarily a shared thing anymore.
1: The way that our stories never really end, right? That there could be a third encounter or a fourth encounter. I I love that about this art form. The way that the story we tell today is going to be remembered differently a day, two days, twenty days, twenty years from now. I I just love that. I I feel that in both of these stories.
0: Yeah, there's something déjà vu about the art of storytelling. Ultimately, you are hmm. going back to a story.
1: So true. Well, thank you so much, Deb. It's been great recording with you as always. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another story. If you, if you need more stories in the meantime, uh, you can check out our YouTube channel or you can follow this podcast. All of that has been linked to in the notes below. And we will see you in a few weeks. Confabulation. the podcast is produced and edited by Deb Vanslette, And of course, thank you as always to our sponsors, the Canada Council for the Arts and the Conseil des Arts de Montréal.